Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we take a deep dive into biblical topics in a way that's easy to understand. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Let's Read the Bible Together reading plan. We also have the plan available on our website, Grove.Church. And as usual, if you've got questions that you would like us to spend time answering, uh, you could just hear a rambling about some of the questions, too. That works. But we would love to spend time answering as much as we can uh, week over week. We typically try to do it at the end of the podcast. There's two ways to send us your questions. One is an email. The, inf- the in- email address is info at grove.church. I tried to get ahead of myself. Info grove.church. Make sure to put in the subject line a podcast question. That way it will come directly to us. Or you can direct message us on Facebook. We are the Grove Church in Washington State. Uh, and we'd love for you to send us those questions there. All right. Well, this week we are jumping in, listeners, beloved listeners. Cannonball. We, we no, are going into another gospel. So we've done Matthew already this year. Yep. And now we're going to do Mark. Yep. So it is nice because, I mean, I, lo- I love the Old Testament. I think I think the Old Testament gets a weird rap sometimes where it's just like, ah, that doesn't matter anymore. And like, obviously, you always have to make sure you're putting it into context and there's Old and New Covenant and all those things. But um, I think oftentimes we don't mind the Old Testament nearly as much as we should. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's nice to, it's nice to see Jesus. I know, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a breath of fresh air. Yeah. But, um, the beauty know, is, though, is that the current Old Testament that we're working through, Old Testament books, is it's narrative. So it's... It reads like a story for the most part, which right. is helpful. But uh, yes, it is nice to have some New Testament and to see Jesus again. Yeah, you know, our Savior, That's it's, it's a good deal. Yeah. It's a good deal. Not that we don't see Jesus in the Old Testament, because that's another big thing I think we have to always very keep in true. mind. But very true. here we go. All right. So Mark is the second gospel that we have in the Bible. However, there is decent evidence that it was written first. So a couple reasons for that. One, it's the shortest gospel. Sorry, all this is circumstantial evidence, by the way. There's no like, obviously Mark didn't put down, hey, I wrote the yeah. dibs first. It's in the fine print. I yeah. wrote it first. Uh, so it is the shortest gospel. And so it's often speculated because there's so many sections that are very similar in Matthew and Luke. It's often speculated that Mark was used as a source for both Matthew and Luke. And then they added on uh, with Matthew it would have been things that he observed during his ministry with Jesus. And then with Luke, it would have been things that he wrote down from interviews that he had with other people, but, and then both using Mark as kind of like the big um, source for that. So that, but again, that's speculation, who knows? Um, But if that's the case, then you could probably date Mark to about the mid fifties. And the reason for that is we would date Luke to about the early to mid sixties because Acts, remember Acts concludes before Paul dies. Um, and again, this is also circumstantial evidence, but it seems like if you're writing a book about the Acts of the Apostles, you would you would include the fact that one of them was martyred. So, because they talk about James, the brother of John being martyred as well, and Stephen, obviously, and a really famous one. Um, and so if Acts was finished before Paul was martyred, that means Luke was also finished before that, mm-hmm. which means it was probably in the early to mid 60s, which means if he was using Mark as a source, then you would assume that it was written probably five to 10 years earlier as well. So that's why we get the date of the early to mid 50s for the book of Mark. Um, the author is pretty much unanimously accepted. Like there's really no, con- uh, there's no, I should say, there's no ancient controversy about this. Pretty much all the church fathers say that it is John Mark who writes the gospel. Mm-hmm specifically with the influence of Peter. So um, yeah, Peter being the main slash only source, John Mark is with him. He's kind of one of his um, <coughs> disciples, little D disciples. I, don't know, it's, I guess we call the 12 disciples the capital D <laughs> disciples. I don't know. I, I've never called them capital D or little D, just yeah, so but, you know. Yeah, I, guess, no. I don't know. You know, not, not Jesus' 12 disciples, I guess, is what I'm trying to get, trying to get at. Uh, but yeah, so that's the idea. And then if you remember... Uh, John Mark, this is a nice little comeback for him because he's the guy who Paul says, I don't want anything to do with him. And he's the reason that Paul and Barnabas split up. So John Mark, 
he he has one of the more it's it's weird because it's in the background. He's never the subject of anything, but he has one of the more in the background great redemption arcs where he is driven away by not driven away, but he's rejected by Paul. He goes on with Barnabas, and then over time we see him write down a gospel, work with Peter, and eventually uh, go back with Paul as well and be counted as a close friend. So good for John Mark. Way well, to go! Welcome back, John Mark. Exactly. Uh, and then Mark, here's a deal. His gospel very much is kind of, I guess if we compare Luke having the best prose as far as like just being well-written um, and like a novel almost, and then we have Matthew just being with all of the connections to the Old Testament, uh, Mark reads almost like a reporter, just like traveling with Jesus and scribbling down like tiny little articles about what he does. It goes insanely fast. It's blink and you miss it. Um, but I kind of also like that energy. I like the idea that Mark is just like, here's the important things. Let's get to it. Uh, so it kicks off with the prophecies of John the Baptist that are found in Isaiah and Malachi. Uh, and then before we know it, Jesus is getting baptized. So there's no nativity in the gospel of Mark. It's not. He's not really concerned with Jesus' early life. He's really kicking it off with the baptism of Christ, because that is essentially the start of Jesus's ministry. And then we go from there. Uh, Mark, yeah, it reads almost like a highlight reel. So here's an example of it. I wanted just to read this. This is Mark chapter one, verses nine through 20, and just see how many different things happen in these short 11 verses. Uh, It says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into a wilderness. Okay, so just like that, we're out of the baptism narrative and we're moving on to the temptation of Christ. Yep. Uh, And he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. And we're done with that. Now, after John was arrested, like, so like, we're not getting any wait, of the wait, details. Mark, slow down, slow down, Mark. Exactly. Yeah. We're not getting the details that we get in the other gospels. He's really just giving us the facts. Um, so now it says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. I mean, yeah, thanks. I mean, thanks. Mar- yeah, because otherwise, why would you cast a net into the sea? Maybe you're just a net thrower. Are you, are you stealing stuff and trying to hide it? I guess that could be. Yeah, you just enjoy watching a net sink, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of like... They got bored. Instead of instead of playing sports, they would throw nets. Well, it's like we had, we had a character <laughs> in a video forever ago who talks about how like he enjoys watching milk boil. <laughs> and I was like, it is actually... Oh, jeez. It is actually an enjoyable thing to look at when you see milk boils. Like, yeah, it rises. It's kind wow. of fun. Anyway. So Evan's referring to a video that was an actual... I, I was, I, for whatever reason, I've, I like video game characters what I picked up on at first. Oh, But gotcha. he's talking about a character in a video that we shot called Cupidero. It was... Funny. It was a whole... It was a whole thing. It was yep. a vibe. It was weird. Uh, so anyway, sorry, that was- It was a vibe? Who are you? I don't know. Here's the thing. That had nothing to do with what we're talking about. Let's get back to it, listeners. And Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they lowered their nets and followed him. So we're not getting- Sweet. Yeah, we're not getting the cast your nets, all of that stuff. It's like, oh yeah, sure. They said, he said, follow him and they follow him. And then going a little on, on a little bit farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, who were in their boats, mending the nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and they followed him. So that is, that's 11 verses and we've got- Baptism of Christ, temptation of Christ, arresting of John, and then the call, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and the calling of the first four disciples. Listen, and there's some of us listening, and we read the Book of Mark. We're like, thank you. That's all I wanted. Just tell me what happened. Yep. I don't need the details. I don't need the emotions. Just give me what. Give me the facts of what happened. Well, and I love, I love the. 
I love that we have four gospels because I've, I've oftentimes heard people lament where, why don't we just have one like big gospel? Like, why does it have to be so confusing? We get all these different perspectives. I love the different perspectives that we get because mm-hmm. Absolutely. it's it's obviously different memories and it shows the personality of the authors too. Because I think, because we believe that all scripture is inspired by God. And sometimes what we take that to mean is like God just possesses someone and then writes down exactly yeah. what it is. No, you can clearly see um, that the perspectives of the different authors are coming in here. Their writing styles are very different. It's not like they become automatons that just write out exactly what the Holy Spirit says. It's that they're being inspired under the power and influence of the Holy Spirit to write what they need to write. So, Well, and I love that it, 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 it really is intentional as well to highlight specific things and characteristics. And they're not just writing from their own account, but they're also writing to uh, a certain audience. They're writing Mm -hmm. to address or highlight a certain reality of, of the authority of Christ. And, and so that's what I love. I, I'm reading through the book of Luke right now myself, like just working through it. And I'm just, some of the things that the, the commentator is really doing a good job is just reminding and highlighting this is John's, or this is Luke's purpose in writing. He's getting us to this point in the ministry of Jesus. And so even the book of Mark, there's a reason why he's writing a very specific purpose. Mm-hmm. That I think it's important to remember. Yep. So anyways, the pace doesn't slow down. Uh, so in chapter one, we see, it, it conti- this is, Past what I just read in chapter one, Jesus casts out a demon. He heals a bunch of crowds and he preaches in Galilee, Galilee and then he Galilee? ends it. Galilee. That's, That's uh, by Gethsemane, by the way. And then he ends it with healing a leper, not a leopard, but a leper, <laughs> a leper. Uh, and then in chapter two, Jesus heals a paralytic in rather dramatic fashion. So this is a story. If you remember, um, he's speaking inside of a house and then the crowd or some friends of a paralytic, they want Jesus to heal him, but they can't wake their way through the crowd. And so they actually cut a hole in the thatched roof and they lower him yep. down on a bed. Really cool story. I love it. Um, also really well dramatized in The Chosen. because I, so I haven't plugged that in a while, but that scene is like, oh, it makes me cry. It's so good. Uh, and then he also calls Levi, who is Matthew, to be his disciple. So there you go there. Yeah. Some Spoiler. Of the, some of the disciples have two different names. The most famous one being Simon and Peter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we also have like Levi and Matthew and then it's Thaddeus and Judas, I think is this two names that that guy's known by. And then there's also, I don't know if that's true. It's Nathaniel and Bartholomew. Yes, that one's that true. one's true. And then I think I'm pretty sure because the uh, the other Judas, the Judas who's not you know the bad Judas. Oh no, I think you're right. Sorry, I, think he's I was Thaddeus. mixing that. Never mind. Sorry. Sorry. Anyway, there's a, not that yep. all that matters, but there's a few disciples. That yeah, are it just depends names. on the context. It depends on the the culture who they're writing from, whether it's a Greek version or whatever. Like there's those nuances yeah. to it too. Well, and sometimes yeah, sometimes it's a dramatic name change, like it is with Simon to Peter, where mm. Jesus says, "I am now going to call you Peter." Um, and then sometimes it's like Paul, where he has. Um, Saul to Paul is essentially his Roman name to his. And so when yep. he goes out to the Gentiles, he's like, okay, I'm going to be known as Paul here. So sometimes it's not the big, like, you know, Jake, uh, Jacob to Israel or Abraham, Simon Abraham. to Peter. Yeah, Abraham to Hammond. Sometimes not that. Uh, and then in chapter three, we get a list of the 12 disciples of Jesus with a major spoiler. So I also love that this is clearly <laughs> the, the uh, John Mark is clearly writing this as if you can't, you, you as the reader are supposed to already kind of understand the story yep. and he's just giving you the details. Uh, this isn't meant to be like a novel, uh, but it says, and he went up to the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired and they came to him and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. So here's a question. Do you think it was only 12 that he brought up to the mountain or do you think out of the group no. that he brought up, there was 12. For sure. Yeah. I think I think there's a ton of evidence that Jesus has more than 12 disciples. The 12 are kind of his special group. Because even within the group of 12, we see there's kind of a group three. of four, and then there's a group of three beyond mm-hmm. that. Because um, I think the most of the people in the upper room seem to be disciples of Jesus who traveled with him also in the ministry. They're just not 
I don't know. They're not the main 12, which I mean, I, I was about to say that sucks, but then I realized like, no, you get to travel. Jesus. That's pretty <laughs> yeah, cool. Like I'd, yeah, right? I'd, I'd kill to be one of those like hundred, not actually kill. You should be a because sin. the Bible yeah. says don't do it. Uh, anyway, sorry. So he appointed the 12 Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, uh, James, the son of Zebedee and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name. Great, greatest nickname in the Bible. <laughs> uh, Boenagers, or that is the sons of thunder. Which is also a band I found out. So I think, yeah, a Christian band named this. The Sons question of was never mind. James were the James and John the name of the band members? Anyways, oh, I don't think so. I I don't know them well enough to know. Uh, and there's Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. So there you go. Just spoiling it right to so that in case you thanks yeah in case you didn't know who Judas Iscariot was. There you go. Well, and he speaks as a matter of fact with the aftermath so even like when when he says simon whom he gave the name peter to True. it wasn't immediately then he didn't like but it's it's a re a quick recap of that instance of jesus life because in later on in simon's life just when he was named peter right yeah because so, that doesn't happen until like chapter nine or ten i think in yeah mark so. so but yeah so there's just it's it literally almost feels like just a quick little outline here's a quick heads up and then we'll dive in some things later but yeah anyways. all right there we go all right so we're going to do some quick hits here we're not going to be reading a ton for these next few chapters, but the beginning of Mark especially wants the reader to understand just how miraculous and special the ministry of Jesus mm-hmm. was. So he is not just some rabbi traveling around and preaching, which isn't a bad thing. There was a there are rabbis who did great ministry that way, but it's clear that Jesus is something different. He's yep. something more yep. than just a traveling rabbi. Uh, he's performing miracles everywhere. And if we think back to the Old Testament, right, what is the main marker of the of a prophet, of their ministry being um, truly endorsed by God is miracles happening. So we just read about it with Elijah last week. We'll talk about it a little bit this week, uh, a little bit later on in this episode. But the way that God is going to show that he has his blessing is that miracles are happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in chapter four, we see the other great mark of of uh, Jesus' teaching. So if miracles is kind of one of the things that Jesus is, miracle, is, is known for, parables would be the other one <laughs> as far as his teaching style goes. Uh, and so in chapter four, we see the parable of the sower, the lamp under the basket, the growing seed, and the mustard seed. And then we also see an explanation as to why Jesus uses parables the way that he does, which is really interesting uh, because the disciples kind of bring up, hey, these are really confusing. And Jesus is like, yeah, you know, I'm kind of intentionally doing it that way. And like, oh, okay, cool. Uh, in, ch- <laughs> in chapter five, Jesus casts out another demon, which is, happens a ton in Mark. And then he heals uh, Jairus's daughter. Uh, which is a great story. So that's kind of, and I also love the stories in the gospel specifically about how um, I love that these Jewish authors do not go out of their way to only have Jewish heroes. And in fact, they really deprecate themselves, deservedly so, but they show all of their own flaws. And then the the two of the greatest stories of faith are the centurion and Jairus who um, have the sick servant and sick daughter respectively, and they so trust that Jesus is able to do what he says he's going to do. You know, he, he commends them for their faith. So really cool. Um, and then it's also, I think, the fact that he brings this girl back to life is some nice foreshadowing of, you know, obviously what the greatest miracle of Jesus' ministry is, is going to be. Uh, ooh, hit my mic. Sorry, listeners. Sorry, beloved listeners. Uh, chapter chapter six give us, gives us a few personal stories about Jesus. So first, how he is rejected at Nazareth. And so remember, Nazareth is his hometown. Which is a big deal. Yep. He's born in Bethlehem, but he grows up in Nazareth. And all the, he goes there and all the people are like, hey, that's, that's um, why can't I remember Jesus? Joseph's boy. Oh my gosh, I couldn't, I couldn't remember his father's name. Uh, and he's like, oh, that's James and Jude's brother. Like, who's that? What? He's a pro- son of God. What are we talking about right now? So you see that Jesus is rejected in his hometown, which is um, obviously really sad, but also really poignant. 
Mm-hmm. Um, next up, he sends up he sends out his twelve disciples to do some ministry on their own. So kind of a foreshadowing of what we're going to see in Acts, where he actually fully leaves them. The Holy Spirit comes, and then they do, they are empowered to go do mm-hmm. exactly what his not exactly what his ministry was, but his ministry continuation of it. And then after this, we see the death of John the Baptist, which I also, that must have been a major emotional blow. And I think sometimes we can skip over that. But John the Baptist was an incredibly close friend of Jesus. Um, they grew up together, at least in, in a certain sense, and their ministries were completely attached. Well, they were and, about six months apart. Yeah. Yeah. They were very close. So I think just in the same way that the death of Lazarus was a massive, blows the wrong word, but it, it brought Jesus intense grief. Yeah. I'm sure this moment must have also been the same for that. Uh, later in that chapter, we see two of Jesus' most famous miracles, and this would be the feeding of the five thousand and walking on water. Interestingly, I didn't, no, I didn't realize in this we don't get um, we don't get Peter walking on water. Yeah, Mark doesn't. Yeah, I didn't know that. We would think because it's the it's the one with Peter that he would. So like, oh, huh, interesting. But yeah, Mark doesn't get into it. So we'll save that for uh, we'll save that for Luke listeners. And then uh, the feeding of the 5,000, obviously, that's just kind of like, you know, the five loves, two fishes, multiplies it, feeds the crowd. Super cool. Uh, in chapter seven, we see some of the conflict brewing between Jesus and the Pharisees. So uh, I wonder how that's going to end. And then, <laughs> yeah, and, I don't know. Yeah, and chapter N, uh, chapter N, chapter eight begins with some more miracles. Uh, but then it gives us this turning point in the story. So it's followed, there are two turning points right next to each other, one at the end of chapter eight and then one in chapter nine. And this is kind of where... I would say there's the beginning ministry of Jesus, and then there's really when it gets, I don't know, serious is the wrong word, because obviously all of the ministry of Jesus is serious. But this is where I think he kind of begins his march to the cross, I guess mm-hmm. is one way of putting it. Uh, so in the end of chapter Mark, or in the end of Mark chapter eight, sorry, listeners, I'm really tired today. Uh, in verse 27, it says, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged him, charged them to tell no one about him. So right there, and Christ being the Greek word for Messiah. Mm-hmm. So kind of this whole, this figure that was being hoped for, this kind of semi-divine figure, they're realizing Jesus is more than just a teacher, like there is something incredibly special about him. And then finally, we're just going to see exactly what this is in the in chapter nine, where it says, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them, Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, for he did not know what to say for they were terrified. That's my favorite line. Yeah. And Peter's like whole thing is like, you know, James and John, they don't know what to say. So they shut up. Peter's, if he doesn't know what to say, he's just going to say something. So, which I, I mean, I identify with that. So it's a, it's a flaw. Uh, <laughs> and a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the son of man had risen from the dead. So they keep them, they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean, which I, well, sorry, we'll finish this and we'll talk about that. Uh, And they asked him, what do the scribes, why do the scribes say that Elijah must first, that first Elijah must come? 
And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it was written of him. So Jesus kind of revealing all these prophecies about uh, the son of man coming. Mm -hmm. And the son of man, we kind of get this idea of it's Jesus saying that he's a human, which is part of it. But there's this, if you read Daniel, the son of man is kind of this clearly divine figure as well. Mm -hmm. So... I also just love one of my favorite features of the gospels in general, because Jesus speaks in parables all the time. So I used to think the disciples were idiots, but now I kind of, I actually, I feel for them a little bit because he, <laughs> but Jesus just straight up says, yeah, I'm going to die and rise again huh? after three days. And this, I was like, oh man, I wonder what he means by that. When what Jesus means is literally, no, I'm going to die and like physically die. And then I will physically resurrect after three days. But yep. what are you going to do? Uh, yeah, so I said earlier already, but at this point, Jesus, in some ways, he's beginning his march to the cross. Uh, miracles continue to happen, but Jesus is now openly telling people that he is going to die and rise again. Uh, in chapter 10, we see another sermon from Jesus where he teaches about divorce, um, shows how much he cares about children, which is one of the great, just heartwarming stories about Jesus in general that <laughs> I, I just love the way that he sees children, especially it just in that. makes you feel warm and good. Well, and especially in that, I think in our culture, we actually do a decent job of valuing children uh, for the most part. And that culture is very much like the children were just need to be, you know, kind of kept away. So Jesus inviting the children to come and, and sit before him was a, was a anti-culture thing of him to do or counterculture, I guess is the right word for that. Uh, he meet, he meets a rich young man. So that's a famous story about, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, he foretells the death, his death another time because, you know, they just won't listen to him. Uh, he humbles the sons of thunder a little bit when they asked to sit at his uh, right and left hand. And then finally he wraps it all up by healing a blind man. So we're actually reading a little bit more this week, but I'm going to cut it off there because we're going to, because we, we also should be reading about Jesus's entrance into Jerusalem. Uh, but I think that makes more sense to talk about next week and we'll yeah. actually wrap up the gospel of Mark. So we're going to stop at the end of chapter 10. But... You keep reading in the reading plan, but we're going to stop talking about it right now. Exactly. So, uh, before we shift into the Psalms, I do want to take a moment and uh, as we do every week, we just simply take a moment and just ask you to leave us a review, uh, whether you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we would love for you to take a moment um, and and leave that review. Uh, and if you can, with Apple Podcasts, I would love for you to leave a written review. I've got one that I want to read here uh, that came in this last week from Nate123456. Uh, I wonder if that's your last name. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but I just I just thought it was the, the one of the raddest podcasts or reviews that we've read in a while just because of the alliteration. Oh, the here. title so, was great. Uh, and the bummer is it was it was... I'm pretty sure there was more brilliance to it, but we, it got cut off so we can only see part of it. But it says this, the title of it is Precise Pastoral Pontification in, in quote or in parentheses, which is funny too, non, I want to say it's non-pompous, but I, I can't see all I see it is cuts pomp, non-pomp. Uh, so I just, I, I just love it. Again, uh, he, he wrote this, uh, I've been listening to, to an audio book of the Bible for some time now. While at work and about halfway through, I found this podcast. I was looking for something to give me an overview of each book before I listened to it. And this is exactly that. Aaron and Evan, uh, that's you and me, bro. Uh, give context to each book and preemptively answer questions that I might have have as I read through it, uh, which makes me wonder if that's sometimes why uh, we don't always get a lot of questions is because we do such a great job ex explaining them. So that's a pleasant uh, thought. I'll, I'll take the encouragement there. Um, but he says this. I love it when Evan nerds out about historical authenticity of the Bible. I love it too because I got to I get to poke fun of it sometimes. Um, <laughs> Well, thank you. <laughs> he does all the research that I want to do, but haven't taken the time. These guys are wildly entertaining, but most importantly, they're informative. Thank you for your ministry. And I can't wait to read the Bible again so I can listen to your scholarly scriptural synopsis oh, of Genesis more through Daniel uh, that I missed the first time around. So, uh, Nate, I just want to say thanks for for leaving us uh, a review like that. Uh, I appreciate that. It's been 
uh, it's, it's fun to have uh, the community continue to, to give feedback. Uh, I also have seen that our reviews have been continuing to increase on Spotify as well as as well as well as Apple Podcasts. So thank you for that. Appreciate yeah, it. Thanks everybody. Uh, we look forward to continuing to to talk together some more. So uh, there's three psalms we're going to read this week. Uh, so I'm just going to kind of quickly hit them for us. As we typically do, we try to give a quick overview of each psalm. Knowing you're going to read them this week, we're not going to deep dive into to all of them, but we do try and give you a quick overview. Uh, so Psalm 44 is the first one we will hit and read this, this week. Uh, this is a psalm uh, that really is meant to be for the whole people of God in context. Uh, as the whole uh, group of people would have suffered great calamity at the hands of their enemies and they're seeking God's help. Uh, in context here in this psalm, the calamity would be would have been particularly painful that they would have quoted this and sang this together. Uh, and painful more centered around the, the, the reality that God has chosen his people and given them a special place and favored them over their enemies. Uh, it's this corporate I or a plural I when it's referred to like I meaning all of us. Uh, and when they request God's help, they don't just ask. And I love this because I think it's so it's it's one of the key components I think that we miss sometimes in our prayers before the Lord um, is that it's they they're not just asking, but they're reminding themselves of their privileged standing with God, which again sounds so pompous and arrogant, um, but it is. They are they are God's people, and so they're reminding themselves as they're asking and requesting God's help. It's based upon what God has said to them, as you are my people. Uh, so they're reminding themselves of that, um, but they're also in that same vein understand the obligation to be righteous and whole and live holy lives uh, that has been laid upon them. And as long as they understand and remember who they are, they're making this prayer and request to, to God. And then as they, they, they remind themselves not just of that standing, but they also remind that God is an unfailing loyalty to the purpose of, to his purpose and his people. Uh, and so you'll get this sense in this tone as you read Psalm 44 of this corporate gathering, crying out for God's help, remembering who they are as set apart by God, uh, the, the obligation that they've agreed upon and that has been laid upon them to live righteous and holy, but also, again, returning to God's unfailing loyalty to the purpose that he has for them. Uh, so that'll be Psalm 44, which is a pretty long psalm this week. Psalm 75 and 76, we're reading it as well this week. Psalm 75 is a hymn of praise that thanks God for the wondrous deeds he has done for Israel. Uh, and it celebrates the fact that he is the judge of all the earth and will in his own time put down the wicked and lift up the faithful, which is really important to remember even today. Um, even as Evan said earlier, we believe all of scripture is inspired by God. Uh, and this is where we grab, grab some inspiration about who God is. And so it bleeds into our modern day conversations where in his own time, he will put down the wicked and lift up the faithful. There is, however, uh, we don't see an indication or specific reason why this psalm uh, would have been written or why the congregation would have sang it. Um, but I think the lesson of faith is needed at all times, even today, and that faith is re relying on God's sovereignty, uh, his rule, and, and this, this psalm will celebrate that. Uh, so that's great. Psalm 76, I want to read it, and then I'll share a couple thoughts on it. It says this, God is known in Judah. His name is great in Israel. His tent is in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. There he shadows the bows of flaming or the bows, flaming arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war, Selah. And a quick reminder of Selah, I think I said this last few times, it's meant to pause and reflect on what you just read before you read on. Um, so you just reflect on who God is, where he dwells, what he is able to do. Uh, and then it, then it shifts to a conversation to God specifically. It says, you are resplendent and majestic coming down from the mountains of prey. The brave hearted have plundered. They have slipped into their final sleep. None of the warriors was able to lift a hand. At your rebuke, God of Jacob, both chariot and horse lay still. And you, you are to be feared. When you are angry, who can stand before you? From heaven, you pronounce judgment. The earth feared and grew quiet. 
when God rose up to judge and to save all the lowly of the earth, Selah, again, stop and pause and reflect. Then it says, even when human wrath will praise you, you will clothe yourself with the wrath that remains. Make and keep your vows to the Lord or your God. Let all who are around him bring tribute to the awe-inspiring, an awe-inspiring one. He humbles the spirit of leaders. He is feared by the kings of the earth. Uh, and I love this hymn because it is a hymn that celebrates Zion, uh, which is the place where God has chosen to dwell. Uh, it's the capital, which is referred to. I mean, if you remember the Matrix, they had a city called Zion that was like their capital, their safe haven. Forgot about that. It was impenetrable fortress, which isn't accurate in Matrix, but that's what Zion is. It's 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 you're, also you're not, not accurate in the Bible. <laughs> it's true. Um, Spoilers. Just, he just ruined my life. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but the capital that God has chosen uh, his people to to be part of, to bless and to protect. Uh, and it would have been sung in celebration after God delivered Zion from invaders. Um, so I have this picture of, and it can't be a, a regular weekly podcast without some kind of Lord of the Rings reference. <gasps> You're doing it I this week? I got you, bro. Um, but it is these moments where you see in, in the Lord of the Rings, after victory, there's songs and celebrations, but there's also songs of sorrow and grief. And so it is a celebratory song. Um and I think that this is probably why I wanted to wait to read this little, this little synopsis after reading it. Um, but it, but in this psalm, you see that the singers would sing and marvel at the privilege of going to Zion and worshiping there, and then in turn thank God for it. Uh, and I think that that's that is a beautiful truth and beautiful picture for us today as modern Christians is to understand. As we're reading through these Psalms, the people have a greater perspective of eternity. They have a greater perspective of God's provision. Uh, and they would marvel at the privilege of being in Zion, God's chosen city to dwell in, uh, where they get to worship there. They have access uh, to worship God in, in, in this place in the city. Uh, and then in turn, their response is to thank God for it. Uh, so sometimes I think it's worth just pausing and remembering the fact that we have access to God because of Christ, that we are able to worship him wherever we're at, even if you're at work right now. The way that we can live our lives really is meant to glorify the Lord and worship him and then to be thankful for the access we have. I think that's the beautiful picture that we get to see here today. So uh, so that'll be Psalm 76, and then we'll wrap up reading Psalms um, for the week. So only three this week compared to last week's or the other weeks where we've had quite a few. So. Love it. Well, this week we are also wrapping up Kings. So, oh man, listeners, here's the deal. Prepare for some depression. Uh, so th- this is where we're going to get into some real rough kings. There's a few bright spots, uh, two to be exact, and then it's just going to be a lot of downhill after that. So uh, in chapter 16 of Second Kings... <sighs> Gotta take a deep breath and yeah. get ready. Buckle up. It's true. In chapter 16 of Second Kings, we get into... Uh, we check in with Ahaz, who was not a very good king at all. Uh, he goes to Syria, and he's so impressed with their god that he brings one back to his own temple. So... That sucks. Uh, and then during the reign of Ahaz, let's also take a look at the new king of Israel, Hosea. Let's hey. See, hey, let's see how it goes for him. <laughs> uh, so in 2 Kings 17, it says this, In the twelfth year of Ahaz, the king of Judah, Hosea, the son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel, and he reigned nine years. Oh, that's not a very long reign, but all right. I guess in fairness, that's longer than a lot of the Israeli kings. <laughs> well, I was going to say, you said king of Israel, so... If you remember last week, seven days, was it Zimri, really Omri? Did. Zimri, I think is the one. Here. Zimri. Yeah. Anyway. Omri was a dynasty reign then. That's right. Got that's defeated. Right. Uh, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Surprise there. Come on, man. Uh, and yet, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. So I guess there is that. Uh, against him came up Shalemes. Oh, I should have looked this one up. Shalmaneser. I'm going to say Shalmaneser, king of Assyria. And Hosea became his vassal and paid him tribute. Uh-oh. Okay. Well, this, this is going south really fast. Uh, but then the king of Assyria found treachery in Hosea. Well, he's a king of Israel, so that checks out. Uh, for he had sent messengers 
to So, the king of Egypt, and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. In the ninth year uh, of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on the harbor the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. Great um, job, Hosea. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, that is, uh, it's disappointing. That's the end of the kingdom of Israel. And if I should I say, love that in the note, you said, so yeah, dot, dot, dot. Yeah, that's just <laughs> all right. Um, so here's the thing. The Assyrians are a little bit unique among the ancient empires of the day that what they would do when they conquered a territory is they would uproot the population and they would purposely scatter them to erase your cultural history. Um, so that's why we talk about the lost 10 tribes of Judah, because we don't have very many records of what happens with those tribes yeah. after this, because they're just, they're gone. Um, and even it's also why we see so much hatred that the the Jews in Jesus' day have for the Samaritans because what the Samaritans are intermarried with um, essentially Assyrians is kind of how it, is, it works there. So it's just a whole, it's really messy. It's a huge bummer. Well, I think um, it's important to remember too, is as we're read, as we are reading the New Testament, we remember stories like the Good Samaritan. We remember stories of like the Samaritan woman caught up, talked to by Jesus at the well. Like this is part of the reason why, like the, the, remembering this piece of Kings is part of the reason why, like there is this animosity and hatred. Yep. So the rest of chapter 17, uh, it tells us exactly why Yahweh allowed this to happen. Um, there's no doubt left <laughs> as to whether the people of Israel had broken their covenant with him. So it's very much about like, hey, by the way, in case you think this isn't fair, here's all the ways that you've broken covenant with me. Uh, the Assyrians did what they normally did. And yeah, Israel's kind of Israel's kind of defeated here. So and it is, it is interesting to me that you see Israel and Judah split. And I mean, they both don't do great, but Judah has these high points that Israel never, like there is not one good king of Israel. Like it's insane to look at it that way. Um, like Jeroboam might be the best one and he sucked, but like <laughs> there's no one, there was no one better after that. Yeah. Um, and you, yeah, you just see this whole idea of speaking, like we've talked about this a lot in the last few weeks, but just the theme of. Israel becoming more and more like the surrounding nations. You see all this political intrigue and fighting and the kings are being assassinated and the dynasties are changing over and over again. And they're just bringing in the other gods. Um, and finally, Yahweh is just like, okay, I've had it with this. I don't even have a covenant with you necessarily. It's with David and his line. So yeah. you're out of here is kind of what happens. So it's a bummer, but it is what it is. Um, and in case, I, I guess in case you were wondering, like Hosea, we would put him in the bad king <laughs> if we're yes, continuing yes. our ranking. Yep. And Ahaz, also bad king yeah. as well. So not yeah, great. There's, there's, yeah. Not, at least they're not child sacrificing scumbags, but you know, they are. They're not the bottom tier, but they're, they're just above the bottom tier. Yeah, they're exactly. They're in, yeah, Hosea is in that very classic king of Israel tier. So there you go. All right. Well, enough with that depression. Uh, let's talk about Hezekiah. Hey. So, hey, one of the two bright spots this week, um, after the disaster that was his father, Ahaz, uh, Hezekiah jumps onto the throne. And, Literally, he jumps onto it. No, yeah. I'm just kidding. Uh, and this takes place while Israel is still standing. So keep in mind, during the early reign of Hezekiah, all of the stuff that happens with Hosea has not yet happened. Mm -hmm. uh, and so Hezekiah is one of the great kings of Judah. And we say this, well, I, my big marker whenever I think there's a great king is if it says he did what was right in the sides of the Lord, and then it gives a little tag at the end that says, 
like his father David before him. Usually that tag is indicative of, okay, that's a great Winning. king. It's a separation between Uzziah and Hezekiah, I would say. Um, Agreed. And so he is, yeah, while the Assyrians are overrunning uh, Israel and specifically Samaria, he is able to hold on to Jerusalem. So good deal there. Uh, and then he is also one of the kings that actually listened to his prophet. So Isaiah, most of his ministry takes place during the reign of Hezekiah. Uh, not all of it. He he outlives Hezekiah. So spoilers there. But uh, yeah, most of the most of the prophets is kind of a, uh, you know, remember Elijah with Ahab that clearly didn't work out very well. And it's even the case with like the kings of Judah. It happens. I, I mean, honestly, like usually it's like... Uh, who was the last king who actually listened to his prophet? Was it David and Nathan? <laughs> I don't even know. There's probably a few others I'm forgetting about, but it's pretty rare. Yeah, it's not very often. So Hezekiah listens to Isaiah, and then this eventually leads to him driving out Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. So after many years, Hezekiah falls ill, and Isaiah visits him, and he tells him that he is close to death and that he needs to basically put his affairs in order, which is a bummer of a prophecy. <laughs> uh, but Hezekiah prays for healing. He asks, he asks God to please extend his life, and Yahweh grants this. And essentially, he spends the rest of his reign uh, preparing Jerusalem for siege because he sees he sees the Babylonians as sorry. At this point, the Babylonians have begun to overrun the Assyrians, so the, the Assyrian Empire is falling. And Hezekiah looks at the Babylonian Empire and he's saying, "Okay, this is clearly the next big threat," and he's preparing for it. Um, and today, if you go to Jerusalem, you can actually see some of the things that Hezekiah built. It's really cool. Like yeah. they're standing from all of that time ago, and some of his like escape tunnels. Um, you can go underneath Jerusalem and see them. So really cool. Yeah. I have not personally seen them, but no, neither have I. I've seen yeah. photos of them. Israel is on the bucket list yeah. for sure. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, so that's. Yeah, it's just, it's just a good legacy. Hezekiah is one of the few kings where when you open up a history book, he's a good king. And when you open up the Bible, he's also a good king. Like he's, ding, ding, ding. He's done both. Uh, and then after the high point, that is Hezekiah, we are introduced to the massive bummer that is his son, <laughs> Manasseh. And I just put in the notes, I mean, just listen to this guy. So we're going to read, we're just going to read nine verses and let's see what we think about Manasseh. Uh, so Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. That's a long time. And it was a bummer? Oh, yeah. That's a long time for a bummer. And his mother's name is one that I don't even care to pronounce. Uh, and he was he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. So this isn't even he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He's saying, yeah, basically, I'm, you might as well not even have been Israel. You might as well just been Canaan. Why did we even have the Joshua yep. uh, conquest after this? Oh, Manasseh, what you a chump. joke. What a... I mean, honestly, also, what a dishonor to your ancestor, Joseph. Jeez. So he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah and uh, his father had destroyed. You remember the high places are these areas besides the altar of the Lord in the temple where you were not supposed to sacrifice. And Hezekiah's like, yeah. I'm not sorry, Hezekiah. Manasseh's like, yeah, for sure. Rebuild them. It's awesome. Yeah, we need those. Bring them back. Uh, he erected altars for Baal and he made an Asherah as well. Uh, come on, dude. And as Ahab, the king of Israel had done, and he worshiped all the hosts of heaven and served them. So essentially he has relegated Yahweh to the status of one of a pantheon of gods and not even the one that he most loves, which I mean, is obviously, I mean, Yahweh, God, he is the one true God. It is insanely disrespectful to just be like, oh yeah. And all these other made up ones as well. So Oh, Manasseh. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. And he built all altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts in the house of the Lord. So he's essentially going into the temple, Yahweh's temple, and he's sacrificing to other gods there. Mm -hmm. And he burned his son, Manasseh, 
and he burned his son as an offering and used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and necromancers. And he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger and the carved image of the Asherah that had made that he had made set he set in the house of the Lord, of which he said to David, his son, Solomon, in this house and in Jerusalem, of which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I'll put my name forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander anymore out of the land that I gave their fathers, if only they will be careful to do according to my doctrine that I have commanded them and according to the law of my servant Moses. So I wonder, I wonder why that's being brought up here. Uh, it's almost like Manasseh is just... <sighs> Child sacrifice and scumbag. Oh my gosh. But they did not listen, and Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Okay, so Manasseh is, I think it's pretty safe to say he is the worst king in the history of Judah, which is crazy to me because he comes after a great king. Like yeah, Hezekiah right? is a great king. Um, apparently, he does not lead his son very well. What makes and, you think his like, son's like, oh, yeah, dad, that was a good direction, but I'm going to try something different. Oh, my gosh. Let's try, let's try this way. Yeah, you think the Solomon to Rehoboam, or the, I mean, the David to Solomon, is a, that's a bummer. The yeah. Solomon to Rehoboam even more of a bummer in some ways. The Hezekiah to Manasseh is probably the steepest drop off between kings that we see anywhere in scripture. Oh, it's true. It's insane. So there wow. you go. Yeah. So yeah, in case you in case you didn't gather from the way we were talking, Manasseh is in the absolute bottom tier yep. of kings. He is he is a child sacrificing scumbag. So yep. classic. We can consider him the anchor. Oh my gosh. Um, after Manasseh dies, we meet Ammon, who uh, he was just as bad as his dad, but at least he had the courtesy to die really quick. <laughs> so so that's well, that's right, because Manasseh was 55 years of this. Yeah, so he's oh. like, I'm not, Ammon was just as bad, but he died after two years. So I guess, I don't know, does he, I guess, I guess he would also go in that very bottom tier of kings. But yeah, if he was as bad as his dad, yes. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, it would, yeah, he at least he didn't. He wasn't able to do as much damage, I suppose. So that is what, Gosh. oh my goodness. And then finally we get to our final high point of the Kings. And this is the reign of Josiah. Josiah Ooh. is the last good King. And he is, I mean, there's, there's an argument to be made that he is the greatest King, not named David. Um, really. Even better than Hezekiah, huh? I think there's an argument there. I wouldn't like plant my flag on that, but I think what's, so what's, what's it? I think you just have to take a little bit of it with confidence and realize that because we're reading this and this is like, we, we've just covered almost a hundred years of Judah's history in a conversation. That, you know what I mean? So like, oh, yeah. to us, as we're reading about this, it doesn't feel like a very long time. The reign of Manasseh was, so So it's 52, sorry, 57 years, if you count in Ammon as well. So that what was 57 years ago. Is that the seventies now? So. Yeah, it'd be 70, 75. Yeah. So it would be like the way that culture has changed from the seventies to now. It's imagining. 70, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of. I'm, listeners, here's the deal. I'm real bad at math. You keep hitting that. You keep hitting that mic, man. Or is it 65? Well, now we're just in real. Now we're in real trouble. The listeners are losing respect for us as as the minutes go by. Anyway, sorry, listeners. My point is, Josiah is being raised in a culture that is sacrificing to all of the idols. They have completely drifted away from. It's not 1945. That can't be true. 77. No, 50. No, oh, 50, okay. 50, so 57. It'd be, it'd be 65. 65. Okay, okay, there we go. So I was I was right after I actually did my math. Samsonite. I was way off. All right. So 65. 1965. Think about how long ago that was. That is essentially how long Israel or Judah has completely rejected Yahweh. That's so long. Josiah reigns, he begins his reign in this, and the first 10 years of his reign continues in that in that manner. 
Because it's not until Josiah is 18 that things begin to actually turn around. So he becomes king at the incredibly... So actually, yeah, the 55 is almost kind of what we can look at. He becomes king at the incredibly young age of eight years old. At that point, you're not even really king. Like no, it would be, be 10... No, yeah, 55, okay. Yeah. At, at that point, Sorry. your advisors aren't... Your advisors are basically ruling for you. Yeah. And you're just... A, and you're just putting your little Herbie Hancock on. Things. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but when he turns 18, he rebuilds the temple, which is A, that's a really cool character move, especially considering, again, he is growing up in a culture that does not value Yahweh one mm-hmm. bit. And so it's really cool that Josiah does this. Um, and then during this time, the law is found, which just shows you, again, how far Judah had slipped, that the law wasn't something that people had in the back of their minds. It was literally found like, what is this? Oh yeah. my gosh, there's rules that we're supposed to live by? Blows off the dirt. <laughs> Dude, Manasseh did a number on Judah. And can you imagine like even how much worse it would have been if Hezekiah died young? Like, like he was going to, like Manasseh's reign being even longer. Oh my oh, man. gosh. Um, so in this moment, Josiah repents and he is clearly seeing what has become of his nation. And he is, he is incredibly sorry. Uh, and he leads all of Judah in repentance. He's like, this is unacceptable no more. Um, and he just goes ham on the high places. Like all of these different altars, he he destroys them all. Remember that prophecy that we talked about last week or even the week before? It was a while ago. Um, but with Jeroboam, when Jeroboam builds all the high places, it's prophesied that there will be a king named Josiah um, who will rise up and he will destroy all these things, mm-hmm. which I used to think is like, that's a really convenient prophecy because then wouldn't you just name your chi- your son Josiah? <laughs> uh, but then I realized, yeah, right. obviously not because Manasseh would have no context of that because Manasseh didn't give two craps about the word. You know what I mean? Like, so like the law being lost and his prophecy being lost, it actually makes sense as to why Josiah would have been randomly named Josiah because that would, that, that prophecy would not have been aware, uh, Manasseh would not have been aware of that prophecy. Well, but then it also makes you wonder, like, with Hezekiah being such a great king, how how did he not? I, I guess maybe Ammon would have been the one that would have disregarded and totally got rid of it, put cast it aside. But mm-hmm. with Hezekiah being such a great king, how do you how do you go that far so quickly? I mean, it's only well, I know it's fifty seven years, and for us, it's it seems like forever ago because I can't even fathom the sixties, but. Uh, but there's still that layer too, right? Where, it, it, I think that's that's a really common theme that we see though in. Most of the kings, because David, like, again, Solomon, it's not as far of a drop as Manasseh, but David, all of David's sons kind of suck. Yeah, um, that's And true. then Jehoshaphat is, he's Asa's son, right? Not Uzziah's? I think that's right. I think that's I think right. That's correct. Sorry. One, I know one of their sons isn't that great, and then the other son is, is a pretty, he's not as good as his father, but he's a pretty mm-hmm. good king as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, yeah, the... Yeah, the, I mean, you, you don't want to put it all on Hezekiah because obviously people have For their, sure. people have their own choices that they make and things like that. But yeah, it is surprising that you go from great king that is Hezekiah to such a depth. Yeah, to bottom tier, and then it also it's even more inspiring. I feel like that Josiah is the son of a bottom tier king, and he becomes one of the great kings yeah. of Judah. And maybe part of that is because he his father dies when he's so young, he doesn't have time to be corrupted by him. At least not well, that maybe. much. So who knows. Um, anyway, so we get this picture in Second uh, Kings chapter 23 of what his reign looked like. So we'll just read this a little bit. And the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of the covenant, for no such Passover has been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel or during all the days of the kings of Israel or of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, the Passover, this Passover was kept 
to the Lord in Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. So Hilkiah is the one who finds the law and he's like, hey, what's this? Uh, Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Here's the deal. That is a statement yep. because David was before him. So this is, this, is, this is putting Josiah in an absolutely incredible category. Uh, still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also from my sight as I have removed Israel. And I, sh- I will cast off this city that I have chosen Jerusalem and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. So it is, I mean, I think it, from we can, there's an argument to be made that Josiah might be the greatest king in the history of Judah, at least as far as like turning his heart towards the Mm -hmm. Lord. Um, And I think even like, again, thinking about the context in which he grows up, David grows up in a a God-fearing household. They worship Yahweh. I mean, Jesse's not perfect, but he's like, that's very much in David's heart there. Yeah. Josiah grows up in a completely pagan Yahweh rejecting Judah, and he turns to the Lord with all his heart. And yet his grandfather sucked so much that God was like, yeah, I'm still getting rid of Judah. Oh, so bad. I mean, at least, and then God clearly is like, he's like, I'm not going to do this during the reign of Josiah because he is such like, he he is such a, a he's seeking me so he's much. He's so faithful. He's deferring my wrath. Right. Exactly. But essentially Manasseh was such a horrible king that nothing is going to stop the destruction of Judah now. Spoilers. That's what's coming. listeners. Yeah. So uh, it says now the rest of the Kings, Oh, sorry, the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the books of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? Well, I guess I'll have to take your word for that. Uh, in the in the uh, days of Pharaoh, Necho, the king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria into the river Euphrates. King Josiah went to meet uh, went to meet him, and Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo as soon as he saw him. And the servants carried him dead in a chariot from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in his father's place. So Josiah dies in battle uh, a little bit younger than you would have hoped. And that is, I mean, that's it. So we're going to talk about, essentially we get four footnote kings and uh, they're all bad. They're all terrible. Uh, and they are Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoi- Jehoiakin, sorry, oh my goodness, Jehoiakin, and then Zedekiah. So at least one of them had the difference, uh, had the, you know, the the decency to change his name to something that was a little bit easier to say. <laughs> uh, Jehoahaz is king for all of three months before he is deposed by Pharaoh, and he is replaced by his brother uh, Eliakim, who changes his name to, or sorry, he is renamed by Pharaoh to Jehoiakim. Um, at this point, Judah becomes basically a vassal state to Egypt. So we're seeing kind of a repeat of what happened with Israel, where mm-hmm. they first become kind of a vassal state, and then eventually they're going to fall. Uh, after this, uh, Jehoiakim becomes king for three months as well. So that we're seeing, starting to see a theme here. Uh, sorry, Jeho- Jehoiakim reigned for a good chunk of time. And then Jehoiakim becomes king. Uh, Jerusalem is promptly sacked by Nebuchadnezzar after three months, where Jehoiakim is carried off. And then the final king of Judah would be uh, Madaniah, who would take the name Zedekiah. And he is the uncle of Jehoiakim. Uh, he, would rules, he would rule for 11 years as an actual full-on vassal state 
uh, and then before Jerusalem would be sacked again, and this would be the final sacking. Uh, after this, uh, Gedaliah is made the governor of Judah, and he is assassinated really quickly by other members. Sorry, I shouldn't say other members. Uh, Gedaliah is a son of a servant, I believe, or one of the high-ranking officials. He is assassinated by the royal family, so actual mm-hmm. descendants of David. And then this leads to a bunch of conflict and then a bunch of Judeans uh, or Judans. I don't know how you'd say that. People from Judah, they flee to Egypt. Uh, And then finally, all of Kings wraps up with these words. And I always think it's really pertinent to read the last words of any book of the old Bible, of the old Bible, the old Bible, of the old Bible. We only read the new Bible here. (laughs) Uh, I think it's, it's important to read the final words of any book of the Bible, just because I think it's, it helps wrap up what the author was trying to say. And so here's what it says. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, in the 12th month of the 27th day of the month, evil Merodah, the king of Babylon, I mean, that's a fitting name. Uh, and the, the, I should say, it's not evil like as an adjective. It's like his name is evil Merodach. Uh, the king of Babylon in the year that he had begun to reign graciously freed Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, from prison. Uh, and he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments and every day of his life, he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. It's so it's so weird that those are the last words. Yeah, that is weird. You know what I mean? So I think for me, what it is, it's this really sad picture of it's grace being given to Jehoiakim the man where he's not spending the rest of his life in prison. He's spending the rest of his life, you know, treated honor. It's it's uh, It's got vibes of Mephibosheth. Yeah, it's um, true. In, in David's household, the way he's being treated by the Babylonian kings here. But you see just how far the kingdom has come where mm-hmm. now... The kings of Judah have been relegated to the role of Mephibosheth, where essentially he is alive solely at the mercy of this other king. These great kings who God said, if you obey my statutes, I will make your line last forever, have now been reduced to essentially, not servants, but just the scraps of the Babylonian king's Mm -hmm. table. And I think this finally completes that transformation that we saw in first Samuel where they have become just like the other nations. And because they are just like the other nations, when all of the nations that are around them fall to the great empires of their time, Israel and Judah both fall to the great empires of their time. And that is how their story ends, yep. at least for now. So yeah, Jude, just, I, really. yeah, I'm sorry. Listeners. It's such a bummer, but it is what, and we're going to talk about it. Uh, Cause we're going to go through Chronicles next and Chronicles is kind of a repeat of Samuel <laughs> through Kings yep. from a little bit of a different perspective. And we'll get into that next week. Um, but yeah. And I, I think there's, it's a huge bummer. I think this is also the catastrophic event that was needed to recenter the people yep. of Israel. And so, cause we see, Essentially, in the exilic period, there is no hint of idolatry. I shouldn't say no hint. There is very little idolatry. They, they are sold out. No, Yahweh is the one true God. We will worship him alone. By the time we get to Jesus, the struggle of the Jews is not idolatry. Mm-hmm. It is kind of, is Jesus the actual Messiah? Yeah. Um, and so I think we see, that's where we see that culture. Because I've said this before, but it always frustrates me when like, you'll see like articles come out every once in a while where it's like, yeah, the Bible's wrong. We see tons of evidence that the people of Israel didn't just worship Yahweh. They worshiped a bunch of gods. It's like, yeah, like read the Bible. That's what that's what Samuel and Kings is about is that they're always worshiping yeah. other gods. But people's kind of- what Judges is about. That's what, yeah. Yeah. That's what 
almost all of the Old Testament before that. the exile is about how the the Jews worship other gods and how God is so angry about that. Mm-hmm. So anyway, because it's what leads to exile. So. Exactly. Anyways. But we'll get into we'll get into all that stuff, listeners, when we get to it. So that is for now. That is the super depressing end of Kings. Sorry, Selah. <laughs> all right so but before, before i don't we, want to say a lot before we uh, before we wrap up we do have uh, a question that came in this week uh so we started off with probably this might be one of my favorite intros ever uh yes. good morning podcasters whom jesus loved amen which i believe we've gotten before but just a great 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 opening uh this person also left us a really they they wrote us a really long yeah. uh message just about how much they enjoy the podcast the podcast and so i would say honestly me and aaron we really appreciate that that yeah, was, that was really, really cool great, that was really great to read. i appreciate being able to be brought into uh, your story, uh, as well as um, being able to to answer the question here for you. Yep. So we won't be reading all of that, but we just want to say thank you so much for sending it. Uh, the question is this, though. He says that my question I'd like to ask is, as a dad of a 12 and 13-year-old, uh, and with you two being a youth pastor and youth leader, respective, oh, and former youth pastor and former youth leader, but you know, people grow. Uh, and what can, what can I do as a father to try and keep my children on the righteous path that they're on now and not allow the world to grab a hold of my children and pull them from God like it did me? This is a fear of mine uh, as public school and friends have had a lot of access to your kids during the day. And I'm sure many parents feel similar to this type of thought. Uh, I know Evan doesn't have any kids yet and Aaron, yours are still a young age, uh, but you're called out. Yeah. Well, yeah, hey, he's got cats. Uh, Just that, I do not think of them that way, Good answer. Uh, but the roles that you both have play as pastors, what are some of the things slash advice that you can give that y'all have seen successful in your years of working with teens? Thanks guys. And keep up the great work. All right. So I told Aaron, he'd be doing most of the heavy lifting. I have things. Uh, it's not, so, it's more of things in my mind of like, what did my parents do well that I, that I, that I also plan on doing when I yeah. have kids. And then Aaron, you have some things, obviously your kids are younger. They're not teenagers yet, but you have some things as oh, well. But I got so. a nine-year-old who's almost in that era. So. There you go. So I'll let you kick it off. You sure? I was going to let you share your your brilliant nuggets of wisdom. They're, these are not brilliant nuggets of wisdom. These are just, you know. Well, here, here's what I would say. I think um, I think the, fr- the proof is in the pudding. I mean, to be old school in that reference for a second, I think um, I think the way that you carry yourself is a testament to your dad and your mom. So um, Tom and Annette, why do I keep having Tim? Tim is stuck in my head. Tim is my uncle. Yeah, I know. But it's stuck in my head because I have a paper I have to follow up with him about. Anyways, um, I, I think if I'm a dad, as a dad, here's here's my wrestling match. Um, I don't do this well yet. And my daughter is nine. My son is five. My youngest daughter is two. And so I'm not in the same era or season as you are uh, with the 12 and 13 year old. Um, and that's that's a big deal. I mean, the, you're right we're, to say that the school districts, the uh, teachers, the friends, uh, the the media, social media, all these different things have so much pull and influence. Um, my wife and I have gotten to the point where we really have this deep passion and heartbeat of, of wrestling through the question of how do we help our daughter love Jesus above everything else. And so, um, so the things that I, I would say is I, my parents did really well a couple things. They um, made church a non-negotiable. Um, and I don't say that as a pastor trying to say, get to church and be in church. Uh, knowing that you're in Florida allows me to say this a little more freely because it's not like trying to petition you to be in Come to the Grove. Um, but but I would say find a church um, that is that is that is good, um, that is solid in biblical teaching, uh, but provides a great environment for for students to be students. 12 and 13 years old is, is not as old as they like to think they are. Um, and, and find a good church and make it a non-negotiable. Um, prioritize that. I think my parents did a really good job not letting me skip church 
Um, and they didn't discipline me from church either. Um, and I, and I get sometimes I think church can be a valid thing to remove from a, from a child's life because of their behavior, because sometimes it's a lot of social influence and it's, it's just where they want to go. But to remove a church, a student from church communicates the, the, the tension I feel that it's not a value. It's not a priority. It's not as important because I can remove it from your life. Yeah. It's a lesser value than other things. Yeah. And I would, so I, w- I would hate that to be the case. So I would prioritize um, getting connected to church. I would prioritize um, your own personal walk with Jesus. I think you can't, you can't lead others, especially your children where you yourself are not prioritizing and being fed. Um, and so you, I would say, continue to grow in your love for Christ, continue to be discerning and wise about when can you bring bring observations and awareness into regulated conversations to where having conversations that are, are spiritual in nature are not weird or foreign. Uh, my parents not only made church a non-negotiable, my dad modeled early morning Bible reading. I remember coming up at different times and seeing him sit on the couch with a blanket around his shoulders, hunched over his Bible reading. Um, I, I remember standing with them in worship while they were worshiping. So I watched them worship. Uh, and so those are all good things. Like you get to model those things specifically. And so um, those are those are a couple of natural things that I think are just, I would, I would encourage you as a dad, um, the, the type of children you want to raise, you, you've got to be all in first. Uh, so be all in and and do everything you can to grow. Be honest and open and transparent in your wrestling at times. Like, hey, Dad, how are you? You know, today's a rough day, man. Like that, but you know, I'm I'm asking Jesus to help me. I, I'd love for you to pray with me um, and celebrate the times that they take a step of faith. Like whether it's prayer, whether it's you know they they vocalize a need and want prayer or whatever that is. Like those are things that you I, it should be normal. Like strive for normalcy of those in your in your home household. Um, I think a couple other practical things that I think of, and I'm sure Evan, you'll have other great thoughts too. I know you don't have kids, but I, I you were a youth leader of mine for a long time, and, and there's a lot of trust that I had for you, and still would have for you, in leading students. Um, is make sure that they have a Bible they can read and create yeah. space to allow them to ask questions. Um, and it, it's it's really important to understand, and maybe even for you specifically. Um, wrestling through some of the context of the book of irresistible by Anthony Stanley and understanding old Testament, new Testament dynamic, um, where the old Testament has its fulfillment in Christ and what that means in regards to the old Testament. But really, I mean, at 12 and 13 years old, I, I would encourage you to have them read the gospels, read the gospels, read the gospels, help them to get to know Jesus and wrestle through truth. Um, because they're going to, they're already hearing things, uh, that are of this world that, that, Jesus needs to be interjected into. And so um, get them a Bible they can read, uh, get a commentary, uh, not a commentary, sorry, a, a study Bible is a great idea. But, I, and I would say, I know the ESV is a great study Bible. I use it. Um, but I would actually probably suggest for their age, probably more of a life application study Bible is, is huge because it's more- NLT is a good translation NLT too. is a great translation for students. I used to do, that's the version I would use when I preached mm-hmm. for student ministry. So um, I could go on and on and we could talk all day long and, and I'd love- I mean, I'll be honest with you, even if you want to have dialogue about specific questions, like you, you're welcome to reach out again and say, hey, we'd love to have more specific conversations. But those are the immediate things that I think are important. But I really would say this, first off, you have to take care of yourself and your spiritual walk and your spiritual rhythms, because that's what's going to be bleed over into uh, your kids following suit, is seeing how you lead. Yeah. So for, for me, I think one of the conversations I had actually a lot with parents when I was thinking about this, I realized how many times I actually had it uh, with parents and youth is when kids grow up in faith, there is a, there is a transition that happens that is really scary for every parent. And that is their faith 
going from being their parents' faith to being their own. Mm-hmm. And I had I, I real I realized I picked up on this on the differences there because I had a I had a really cool friend group that I mean they're all I'm still friends with all of them, but like half of my friends, like my, my close friends grew up completely away from God. And they actually, when we met in youth and they came to youth group. And so for them, their faith has always been their faith. It's never been their parents' faith yeah. because it's something they discovered on their own. Whereas for me, I grew up in church and I have other friends who grew up in church. And there's a moment where it's really scary, um, but you begin to wrestle with doubt and you begin to wrestle with, because you 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 reach an age where you stop blindly believing what your parents tell you. Yep. And now your faith can no longer be your parents' faith, it has to become your own personal mm-hmm. relationship with Jesus. And I would say very quickly to that, that age is no longer 15, 16 years old. It's 12, 13. Yeah, it 11. can be whenever. And, but, I, but I would say culturally, it's, it's increased. It's, it's actually not increased, sorry. It's, it's, it's become quicker for students to wrestle through those things mm-hmm. uh, st- across the board because of the nature of social media, because of the access of of all sorts of information within the fingertips of a phone. So um, it's even more so, ra- it's rapid, more rapid. I think that's a phrase I was sure. looking for. So yeah, I think in your era, in my era. Because I was about 15, 16, yeah. And I, I and I was I was 15, 16, 15 going on 16 when I, I made my own decision to, to give Christ, give Jesus a chance mm-hmm. to change my life. Um, and I would say now, because of the, the rapid pace of our society and the rapid access of uh, so much at our fingertips that that is no longer like 12, 13 is like the, the upper threshold of, of the accessibility and the, the no longer trusting blindly what, what mm-hmm. we're being taught. And so, yeah, I guess from there, I would just say like, because we know that that is coming and because it's so important that that, that, that transition does happen, mm-hmm. it's not, it's obviously age appropriate, right? Because you have to kind of For sure. factor in what those things are, but it's, it's allowing your kids to be exposed to things that are challenging, um, but then walking through that with them. And so yes. I think having those hard conversations of faith, having those, you know, there's things in the Bible that are really difficult to talk about. And so it's not hiding those things. It's not making it sound like, oh, well, let's, you know, let's, let's not yeah. worry about it. It's actually like, no, let's, let's dialogue about that. Let's talk about that. You know, that is really difficult. Let's talk through that as well. Um, well, I think it's not even the cookie cutter answers. Yeah. Some, it's like, oh, it'll all work out in the end. Like, don't give them the answers because that's, that's where some of the growth comes in too, is when you're wrestling through the difficult things. So let them wrestle through it, but be right there with them. Yeah. And if, for me, I guess, growing up, one of the things I always appreciated was that, there, that Jesus was just always in the house. It mm-hmm. was kind of, um, it, it was, it could almost be a thing taken for granted, but it was never a thing where it was like, my parents were very consistent, I guess is the way to put it there. So it was always this moment where like, it was always, we talked about it. Um, church was always a priority. It was almost never like, yeah, you, you're not skipping and stuff like that, but it's also making it fun. Um, and I think what Aaron said is absolutely true is the way, the way that you model Christ for your kids is incredibly important. Um, and that is, you know, that's obviously the goal of one day when I'm, when I'm a parent, that's what I want to make sure that I'm able to do as yeah. well. So those would be my kind of like advice for what it's worth, mm-hmm. I suppose, in my season of life. Well, and let me clarify for a second. Um, when I say don't make or make church a priority, there, there's moments I miss Sundays, just, just as a heads up. There's moments I miss midweek, mm-hmm. um, family vacations, but I, I never missed, I never skipped just because I didn't want to go. I, I, my parents would not let me not go to church because I just didn't feel like going. Um, they wouldn't let me live in my faith based upon my emotions. And and emotions as teenagers are, are hot and cold. And so so when I say like make church a priority, it's not like you can't miss a Sunday. You're going to miss a Sunday. That's okay. 
But I think the beauty of, of church, I mean, this is what, something we say all the time. Like we believe the church is not the body. It's not the building, but it's the body. We are the church. We exist for the world. It's part of our code as a church here. Um, but we also believe we're the temple created by, that, that holds the house and houses the Holy Spirit because that's how we, we are, God created our bodies that way. So, so I think that there's something to be said about uh, of bringing Jesus in. And every, I, I love the way you said it, like Jesus was always present. And whether it's in how I, my, my kids treat their siblings and how they respond and react, how they play sports and everything they did, that's always trying to help them understand that Jesus is present. And he's not, he's not mad or disappointed in them. Like there's grace in there, but it's called, we're called to live to a higher standard. So, um, yeah, I hope, I hope that was helpful. I, I, I always feel like in these conversations, I'm, I'm a little inadequate because like I said, my kids are still kind of young and, and I, I'll be again, just totally honest, like with my nine year old right now, I really, I really feel this weight of God. I want to help her love you, Jesus. I want her to love you more than anything else. She went public with her faith a few months back. She got baptized. She understood what baptism was. We walked her through that conversation. It wasn't an emotional or whimsical thing. It was, she's point blank said, no, I want, I want Jesus to be everything I live for every day of my life. Um, and so now it's my job to train and raise her up to do so. But um, the, the one, last thing I'll say is this, God has called you to be a parent, which means he's also going to equip you to parent well. You have to rely on his strength, his his resource, his spirit to do what he's called you to do. And so um, that that's that's the thoughts that I would have for you. All right. Well, on, on that note, that does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. Uh, if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you'd like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can do that on our website, grove.church. And then as a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find all of our other resources on our website, grove.church. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.